0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. All right, well, we're happy to be together. Hopefully, you're happy to be here today. I don't know about you, but I'm excited. Uh, Excited for Mother's Day, so thankful for all you moms out there, Uh, just Want to make sure you see that little backdrop back there uh, in the lobby so you can get pictures with your moms today and with your children. Um, We are continuing our study in the book of Mark, uh, looking at Mark chapter 2 this morning. Uh, The topic is that Jesus is Lord over everything. Now, I love Mark's approach to the gospel because uh, out of all four gospels, his is the shortest and uh, most concise. And for me being someone, and I don't know about you, but someone who struggles with ADD at times uh, or undiagnosed or I don't know what it is, but I, I, don't, I don't have time for things that are really long. I mean, I, I make time, but I'd rather not. Uh, and so in these passages, you get shorter stories and Mark really gets to the point and gets to the point of what's happening. Uh, my wife and I were talking this week about this because sometimes I ask questions that seem really dumb. Uh, They just seem dumb. They're not dumb questions, but they seem that way. Uh, Because I'll ask questions about what's going on, maybe at Foster Love or something like that. But I look on social media and I'll read the first two lines or so. But if it says uh, that little two-word thing that says, see more, I I don't click it because I, I just, I know it sounds bad and maybe insensitive, but it's just, in my brain, I gotta be able to figure it out in those first two sentences, or I just don't click it. Uh, and so I end up asking questions that she's already answered, things like that, you know, it's a great, great marriage, but, you know, sometimes... I'm really annoying. So uh, I love how Mark does it because he answers it's not like Seymour. It's like, here it is. It's right here on the table for you. Look at it. And that's what we're going to do today. Um, If you look at verse 17, coming off of what Jesus said last week, he kind of gives this sarcastic gut punch to the leaders, the religious leaders. He says in 17, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, But see, the self-proclaimed healthy still didn't get it, right? They're still trying to figure this out and not realizing that they are the ones that really do need a physician. But instead, proclaiming them as themselves as healthy. During his ministry on earth, Jesus spent a good amount of his energy helping people understand who he was and the mission his father had him on. He did this through many things, through relationships, through public speaking, through miracles, entering into life with people, through hurts and struggles, and simply explaining things in practical ways and helping them relate to his mission and message. See, the reality is a lot of people paint Jesus into a picture before they know the real Jesus. And I heard this last week at the FCA basketball tournament with Zach and hearing a message uh, from one of our friends, Eric Coney, who shares about him coming to faith. And he's like, you know, I didn't really know much about Jesus. And what I thought about Jesus wasn't the Jesus that I actually read about in the Bible. And he came to faith from reading scripture. And it's amazing and fascinating to watch. And this is the Jesus who we're seeing today, The primary issue that the religious leaders had with Jesus was his claim to be Lord equal to the Father. And these leaders, they made the decision about Jesus early on. And that's why they sought to put him to death. So this topic of Jesus being Lord, there have been a number of speakers and authors uh, speak on this topic and uh, have referenced certain things like uh, this profound argument that goes all the way back to Rabbi John Duncan in the early 1800s. But it was made more popular by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. If you haven't read that, you might want to grab a copy of that. It's amazing. So C.S. Lewis wrote this in 1952. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher, he has not left that open to us, he did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was either neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So that's where we find ourselves today, looking at this passage in Mark chapter 2 and into chapter 3. Seeing him claim to be Lord over everything, not allowing us the opportunity to leave him in this small little world of just being a good teacher, But seeing that he is claiming ownership and lordship over everything. And that's where we're at today. And he does this in really fascinating ways and practical illustrations here and creative rebuttals to the religious leaders. So let's look at verse 18 in chapter 2. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So there's a lot just in that short passage that we'll look into and we're gonna get into some more. But we need to understand that first of all, Jesus is trying to help us see and help the religious leaders see that he is Lord over spiritual practices. What's going on here, he's talking about, first of all, fasting. So they come up with a question. These people come up with a question and say, hey, I noticed John's disciples and even the Pharisees' disciples, they fast, but your disciples don't fast. What's the deal? What's the problem here? It seems like you're unspiritual. But the Pharisees, you know, they were known for fasting at least twice a week. And they were known to have this opinion that if you were comfortable, then you were probably not very religious that you had to make yourself uncomfortable in order to really know God. And so for them, not fasting is unheard of. And it made sense for the disciples of John to fast, he stressed repentance, so there was this time for fasting because it was all about repentance. Yet Jesus and his disciples did not have the same emphasis on fasting at that time. It doesn't mean that God doesn't like fasting. You can see it all throughout scripture talking about fasting. But there's a time and place for it, and what Jesus was trying to tell him is, now's not the time or place. And so he gives a great illustration in verse 19. He says, can friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with him? He uses this illustration of a wedding which was so relatable back then. Everyone could understand and relate to what he's about to say to them via this wedding illustration. He drew on this powerful picture in Jewish culture So during the week-long wedding celebration, rabbis declared that joy was actually more important than observing religious faith. That there was an exception being made at this beautiful picture of this wedding so that the joy actually superseded the law. The joy superseded what was being required. And in, uh, in the days of Jesus, some rabbis declared this in a way that uh, if any law came in the way of having a good time during a wedding, you actually didn't have to keep the law. Adam Clark, he was a pupil of John Wesley, he says marriage feasts were times of extraordinary festivity and even of riot among several people of the East. I've been to some weddings up in the northeast and I would probably agree is, is kind of riotous. But he says this, the reality is uh, you enjoy the groom and you enjoy the bride at that time. You're not going away and going, secluding yourself and going to times of prayer. And so in this sense, it's a lot different than we know in our culture of weddings, Right. Many of you are married, and, and, or if you're looking to get married, or maybe you're engaged, you're looking at, what, a honeymoon, right? And you're going to be heading out on this honeymoon, whether to another country or another part of the country, and you go that direction. Well, in this time, Jesus is relating to the culture at the time. They didn't do that. They actually, the friends and family would come, and they would take off for at least a week, and they would celebrate and party for a week long. Some of you young people are like, I don't really want my family having any part of the post-wedding festivities, right? Uh, We can leave them at home and go on our way. But here it was different. It was a humongous party to the point of even riotous behavior happening. And Jesus is giving this illustration to help them understand, look, here I am, the groom, And here is my bride, here the church, uh, not the church formed yet, but the people who are my, believe in me, and here you are, it's time to party. It's time to enjoy me in your presence, but you're just not getting it because you don't see me as Lord, and you don't see what's happening here. And a side note, and a positive one, an encouraging one, is you are the bride too, If you're a believer, you get to be the bride of Christ and you get to enjoy life. Some, uh, man, some believers are so miserable and I just look at them and just, it's just so sad because you really don't know Jesus. It doesn't mean putting on a fake face and just pretending to be happy, but knowing Jesus gives you joy, joy in sorrow, joy in difficulty, and the groom does that for us. Pastor David Guzik out of California, he puts it this way, Jesus' message was bold and clear. I'm not like the Pharisees or John the Baptist. I am the Messiah, the bridegroom to the people of God. Wherever I am, it's appropriate to have the joy we associate with weddings. I love how he puts that. Quit comparing me. Don't compare me to these religious rituals. Don't compare me to John the Baptist. John the Baptist would tell you, quit comparing me, right? Right? I'm the Messiah. I am Lord. I'm different. Then he gets into verse 21 and 22, and he kind of uses these practical illustrations for back in those days, talking about unshrunk cloth on an old garment and this new patch. And I don't know if any of you out there got hand-me-downs growing up. Anybody get hand-me-downs? Uh, we're the younger sibling. I was. The, I'm the younger of two brothers, or, or of of boys. And so before my brother and I went went different ways as far as our development. Uh, putting it nicely. Uh, s- s- sorry, John. Uh, but before he did that, I would get his pants handed down to me, and sometimes they had these patches on them, and like they're the patches from the inside, you know, not like really whatever. So, but sometimes they'd be like kind of. Jacked up, even when I got them and they're a little loose because you'd have this patch that was trying to put on some kind of hole, but the hole didn't really have much support around it, right? It's kind of like uh, if you're trying to slap a, a patch on drywall, but you don't have a stud to nail into or screw into, right? And it's just kind of floating there. That's not gonna be a good patch. And this is what Jesus is saying here. He's like, look, this is the danger of trying to put something new on something old. It's clear in this illustration of a garment. But he also uses this illustration of a wineskin, which I really had to look up. This is a picture of it, uh, and just really had to help me understand what in the world Jesus was talking about here. But when they would put this wineskin, they'd have this wineskin, they'd have to have it new, and they put new wine into the new wineskin so that it had opportunity to grow and expand as the wine fermented. So it was important for them not to throw new wine in the old wineskin because the new wine would burst all over this guy as it started to expand. And so this uh, Pastor Guzik, he he kind of helps us understand it a little bit better as well, help me understand. He says Jesus' point was made clear by these examples. You can't fit his new life into old forms. Jesus traded fasting for feasting, sackcloth and ashes for a robe of righteousness, a spirit of heaviness for a garment of praise, mourning for joy, law for grace. Jesus came to introduce something new, not to patch up something old. This is what salvation is all about. In doing this, Jesus doesn't destroy the old or the law, but he fulfills it. He came to bring something new. And the good thing for us is he gives us new life no matter what our bodies physically look like or are becoming or deteriorating into, guess what? You have something new inside of you. And it's amazing to hear this picture spelled out. Um, I guess the question we could ask ourselves, though, is what kind of wineskin are we? Maybe if you did some focus inside to say, am I... Like new wine skin, where God can do something in me, Christ can do something in me, push me in ways, take me through challenges and trials to where I'm pliable, where I'm able to expand and able to adjust to see what thing God is doing in my life today. Or am I like an old wine skin, where I'm just stuck in my ways, and if anything new comes along, or if Jesus pushes me out onto the water to do something different, I'm going to explode. But instead, Jesus is showing, look, I'm different. I've done something different. I'm doing something different. And even in our own lives, sometimes he wants to do something different and have us in a place where we're moldable and shapeable. Mark moves from the practice of fasting uh, in these spiritual practices now to observing the Sabbath. Sabbath. He proclaims he's Lord of the Sabbath. If you look at verse 23, one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So here's this challenge, you know, the disciples are going around trying to get a snack. They're grabbing a head of grain, rubbing the chaff out and trying to get a a good snack of grain along the way. But it happens to be the Sabbath. Now, first of all, if it was me, I'd be like just focused on what they're doing and calling me out, really, for heads of grain. Are you kidding me? But you notice Jesus didn't nitpick at them at these surface things, right? Jesus went to the heart. Jesus went to what was really going on. And so he gave a story about David and his troops. They're entering the temple, this tabernacle, and going in and eating. And the way he illustrates this is fascinating. And he's basically saying to them in illustrating this story from David, he's saying, this is my house, And even when David and his troops were doing it, it was also my house then. He was claiming authority over the house all the way back to this time, even in David's life, that Jesus was present there. He was showing that he was there, not physically, but he was there because he is God it's further evidence in Matthew twenty one thirteen, when Jesus experiences those guys selling and, and ripping people off in the temple, he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers, which he's referencing Isaiah fifty six, seven, which says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So when Jesus says, my house, and when Jesus talking and using this illustration, he's saying, guess what? I'm Lord over this house too. I'm Lord over everything. He's Lord of the Sabbath. And so we see this illustrated in this way. And then the second one in chapter three, we can see in verse one, he says, again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So here he is in this second example where a man has a withered hand. And this man would have been outcast from society back then. He would have been over here on the side, probably begging. And here they go, bringing him to him. And this man's here, the Sabbath is going on, and they're just waiting and watching, right? They're just looking to accuse him, it says. Have any of you ever experienced that in your life? where you have people in your life like just waiting to see you screw up, to see you mess up. I'm the youngest of four kids and I had lots of eyes on me. There goes Timmy again. (laughs) You know, he's messing up. He's doing this. He's into this. Oh, he's into the cookies or whatever it was I was into. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not claiming to be an angel. I, um, in turn, had eyes on my brothers and, and sisters and ratted them out many times. But imagine just always having that. It's one thing to have it here and there, but Jesus always had people looking to accuse him. 24-7, and here he is with a man with a shriveled hand. But Jesus speaks to human dignity and rational thought here in verse four. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm? What are they gonna say? <laughs> you know? No, I choose harm, right? No, he's, he's saying to save a life or kill, and what does it say after that? They were silent. I absolutely love these occurrences in Scripture where Jesus gives an answer and he gives this profound answer. It seems simple, but then they're just like, oh, I don't know what to say here. I have to stop talking because if I talk, I'm going to incriminate myself, right? And so here he is using human dignity, rational thought, turning the tables on them. And then you notice Jesus' anger and distress. He was angry with these religious leaders. But he was also distressed and this is a sign of his humanity and his deity working together. But if you look at the Greek language for distress, it actually means to be moved to grief by sympathy. So you have this situation where Jesus looking at people who are constantly accusing him, constantly trying to see him get tripped up. He even knows they're, they're gonna try to put him to death, right? But instead of being just totally angry and using his uh, supernatural skills to just constantly put them in their place and make them look like idiots, right? Instead, he has this reaction of sympathy. You see that in other places of scripture where he says he looked at him as sheep without a shepherd. And here Jesus is looking at him in sympathy. I, I thought about Mother's Day this week leading up to this talk, you know, and just trying to think through this because there's not a lot in this passage that directly relates, but I think here It does. Because I would say my own mom and maybe you as a mom or maybe your mom that you had had this gift to not only be angry at you in a moment, but to still show sympathy. They could be really, really upset at something you just did, but in the same way on top of it, being able to be, sympathize with you because they understood he just doesn't get it yet. A little more patient than maybe us dads in these situations. And so it's a blessing to see and a blessing to remember that this is the kind of patience and this is the kind of sympathy that Jesus had. So the response of the Pharisees backs up the fact that Jesus called them uh, the sick in, in verse 17 of chapter two. It shows that they didn't have a clue and they were still operating as sick people but not even realizing it, not even realizing their need for a savior. And notice verse 6. This is pretty cool. The Pharisees went out and immediately held... Well, not cool that they wanted to destroy him, but cool in this sense. I'll explain. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. So here's something kind of interesting. Back in the NFL draft this year, in 2021... Uh, the Eagles have no hope. I'm an Eagles fan and it's just sad, but they do have some cool young players to watch. And as the draft was approaching, I'm just trying to watch this segment of the draft where the Eagles pick was coming up. And in this pick coming up, the Eagles the Cowboys were next, then the Giants, then the Eagles. Well, the Giants and Eagles both needed a star receiver and there was this Heisman receiver just waiting, right? And so the Cowboys were up. I'm like, Oh, man, the Giants are going to get this guy, right? But then all of a sudden, flashing on the screen is this trade. And it was this situation where the Cowboys and Eagles got together and somehow worked out a trade when, if you don't know the situation, the Cowboys and Eagles hate each other. It's like this tradition of just not liking each other. I don't know if it's geographical, Texas, Philadelphia, I don't know. But it's just this constant trash talking. Of course, I'm never in on that. You know, I'm just trying to be a nice fan, right? But those that do trash talk uh, are really into the Eagles-Cowboys rivalry. But it was kind of interesting how this worked out because the Cowboys and Eagles, somehow their representatives just in that moment became friends. Just for a moment of time, they actually probably called each other and said, you hate the Giants, don't you? Yeah. You hate them worse than you hate us, right? Yep. Well, so do we. Well, let's make a trade. And they were able, the Eagles bumped up in front of the Giants and took the Heisman Trophy winner, wide receiver, and left the Giants fans so angry. And I was so fulfilling. I know that's a horrible... I'm I'm confessing right now. Uh, But I say all that to say this, that the Herodians and the Pharisees in this verse right here, they were the cowboys and eagles. They hated each other. They would never be found in a room together. They wouldn't have a meal together. They wouldn't enjoy each other's company. They had two different missions and two different thoughts about how the world should be and what was going to end up happening. But yet... They came together in hatred for the Son of God. And even today, when we look around, there's a lot of hate going on when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to Jesus, what? He's calling himself Lord, are you kidding me? And it makes these interesting combinations of friendships because they all gather together to see if they can destroy him. So there's two main pressures on Jesus during his time on earth those we just looked at were the religious leaders and those who are about to check out the people. Mark transitions from showing Jesus as Lord of spiritual practices to being Lord of the people. So look at verse ten, uh, 7. Verse 7 You know, 34 times in the Gospels, a crowd is mentioned around Jesus, 34 different times. And in Mark alone, it's mentioned 10 times, just in the book of Mark, where there's this crowd and this multitude. It's not just a couple hundred people, but it's thousands of people, as you can see in scripture, where he fed the 5,000 plus women and children. It's just mobs of people. And I was trying to think to myself, how in the world could I relate to this? you know, a crowd of people pressing in. And I remembered one, one memory from college that I had where I, uh, I went on a mission trip uh, on a basketball team and a bunch of college players got together and we went to Costa Rica. And we went and practiced a little bit and then they arranged games all over Costa Rica for us to play. And it was back, uh, man. It was uh, like 19, uh, I don't know, 98 or something like that. I know it's crazy, before 2000. Uh, but we're back there playing. We're in Costa Rica. There's no like a lot of YouTube going on. There's not uh, smartphones or anything like that. So we get over there and we're playing, and the Costa Ricans really <laughs> couldn't distinguish between us and like an NBA team. <laughs> now, this was really fun because we're out there playing and we're winning our games, you know, and there's even a guy who looked like Shaq, so they called him Baby Shaq, and, uh, and we're out there playing, and after each game, it was horrible for a guy with my personality because after each game, people just, like, mobbed us for autographs. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like who do you want to make out to, you know? And, uh, and so to the point that it wasn't just, like, a few people around, to the point that we're pressed up against a wall and, like, where do we go? we can't move. And all we're doing is signing autographs. And something in me wanted to tell the truth, but most of it was like, I need to come back here, right? Every summer. And this is amazing. Uh, And so in this moment, I had this little, little hint of what it's like to have people pressing in. I didn't fear for my life at the moment, but this is just, probably doesn't even do it justice, but the reality is some of you may be something like this and, and for actually doing something worthwhile. But in the, in the same moment, though, we see this is just a heavy crowd just pushing on him constantly to the point that even in, here in this verse, he says, lest they crush him. Because some people are like, oh, Jesus had some followers. was a little group that followed him around, you know, kind of like the Pied Piper, you know, people... You know, playing flutes and trumpets in the background, whatever. But this is like thousands of people pushing in on him to the point that you can see him. He had a plan here, right? He's Lord of the people, and this is what he does. Instead of hiding and escaping and avoiding the crowd, Jesus makes a plan. He has the disciples grab a boat. He pushes out a little bit and speaks to them and interacts with them. He did this in Luke chapter 5 as well. And you can see him doing this many times. There were times where he had to escape and pray and be with his father. But he was Lord of the people. I love verse 10. If you look there, he healed so many. I love passages that are slightly vague about what Jesus did. Now, some people get frustrated by that because they're like, I want to know all of them, right? <laughs> but we can get frustrated by it. But the amazing thing is to use our imagination to see what in the world, this is, was crazy. And it reminds me of uh, John chapter 21, 25. It says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did where every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is Jesus, the Lord, showing himself, the Lord over everything. Countless things over and over again. People coming from all these different towns, this great crowd pressing in because they saw the amazing things that he had done. So, as we wrap it up here today, here's the deal. The reality is that everyone will stand before God. You can take the Pharisee approach and count how many rules you follow. You can take uh, the atheist approach and deny the existence of God. You can take the agnostic approach and be indifferent to spiritual things. You can do the church attendance thing and, and shine your stars for all the things that you do for the church. But when all is said and done and your life is over, you will answer for what you did with Jesus. The only thing that will matter when you stand before the Almighty is what you did with this Savior. And how did you respond when you heard about him being Lord over everything? I think this scripture is perfect for an ending today. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 through 13. bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You talk about inclusion. You talk about somebody who sees everyone the same, see someone who doesn't play favorites. Here it is. Our culture does that everywhere. But here's the offer today for you. Maybe you're here just visiting with your mom. Maybe you haven't ever been here and Jesus is calling your name today saying, I am Lord, trust me as your Lord and Savior. Or maybe you're in this room as the bride of Christ, as a Christian. The question is, what are you doing with the fact that he is Lord? Are you showing every other people, the person around you in your interactions in daily life that he is Lord of my life? So many times people can look at my life and it's a shame, but they look at my life and they see that I'm operating like I have a different Lord. It's convicting to look at this passage as a Christian, as a believer, even as a pastor to say, what does my life look like? Does it show that I have a Lord and a King, the Savior of the world on the throne of my life? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time to be together. We thank you for your love and your mercy, your grace. Thank you for how creative and amazing you are in interacting with those that opposed you. Instead of just making them look horrible and evil, although that was the case, Lord, instead you even had sympathy and you offered grace, you offered mercy to everyone and you still offer it today. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know you today, that even where they sit, that they will understand that they can trust in you as their savior, recognize you as Lord of their lives, the one who paid the price for their sin and took away the separation between us and God. For us as believers, Lord, work on our hearts to understand what it means to act in a way that shows that you are Lord to those around us. We praise you for your life, your love for us, and your mercy. Bless us as we go out this week. In your name we pray. Amen.